how are we going to develop an energy system which enables 10 billion better lives and at the same time is going to have to have energy transitions happen faster, more fairly and be more far-reaching all parts of the world. For air quality, people get hung up on the direct cost to the NHS which is 42.88 million a year they're not quite understanding that that translates to 20 billion pounds a year in economic cost so that's twice that of obesity that healthcare cost avoiding that unlocks all this other money for jobs and businesses and people working longer and people just living healthier lives Edie's Sustainability Uncovered podcast is hosted in partnership with Lloyds Bank. We're delighted to have Lloyds Bank involved as they support UK business in the transition to a more sustainable future. Businesses of all sizes have the chance to power and accelerate this transition and seize the huge opportunities presented by it. Lloyds Bank works with clients not only to help finance this transition, but also to understand the challenges they face and the business prospects they look to capitalise on. To find out more, search Lloyds Bank Sustainability. Lending is subject to status. Hello and welcome to the ED podcast broadcast in partnership with Lloyds Bank. It is the week ending Friday the 15th of September 2023 and this is Sustainability Uncovered, the show for anyone and everyone working in or passionate about sustainability and climate action. Coming up in today's show, which is themed around the UN Global Goals, we speak to Enjoy the Air, who help us make sense of the noise surrounding policy making and investing for cleaner air. We then have a discussion with the World Energy Congress asking the all-important question of whether we can truly deliver affordable, clean energy access for all by the end of the decade. All of that and more coming up in this episode of Sustainability Uncovered. So yes, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, depending on when you are listening to this episode of Edie's Sustainability Uncovered. If you're new here, welcome. If you're joining again, welcome also. You are listening to the voice of Edie's deputy editor, Sarah George. And that's actually going to be the only voice you hear in the studio. You might also hear a big echo or a tumbleweed passing by because it's all quiet on the sustainability front. And by the sustainability front, I mean our little podcast studio at EDHQ in West Sussex. So I have no Luke, no Matt and no Jade. I'm all alone because our studio is being moved around a fair bit this week in preparation for some exciting stuff in the future. Um, I wonder if anyone listening is as devastated as I am about not getting to find out this week who the winner of our SDG Wheel of Fortune is. Um, As a reminder, we took five spins of the wheel in the first part of this two-parter, answering trivia questions about five sustainable development goals and putting the team to the test. Luke and Matt are neck and neck with two points each, and if you've met either of them, you'll know that they're both extremely competitive. So this really is a bit of a cliffhanger, but unfortunately we'll have to wait until next time to spin the SDG Wheel of Fortune once more. If you're listening and you're wondering what on earth is Sarah talking about, please do bookmark the first part of this two-part special of Sustainability Uncovered um, with the first edition of the SDG Wheel of Fortune, plus interviews with Sale GP and the Research Institute for Disabled Consumers. Um, But for today's proceedings, I suppose there are a few good things about me being in the studio alone. 
Um, firstly, the listeners don't get yet another in-depth update about Matt's ailment, specifically his his back pain. Um, and number two, we can dive straight into two high-level interviews around the delivery of the UN's Sustainable Development Goals, SDGs for short. So our first guest today is Kate Barnard, CEO and co-founder of Enjoy the Air. Um, and it was great to get an email from Kate asking to come on this episode because simply it couldn't be more timely. If you're listening from outside of the UK, you should be aware that air quality and investment in improving air quality has become something of a political football in recent weeks. London's Labour Mayor Sadiq Khan has expanded the London ultra-low emission zone to all of Greater London. The Conservatives have fiercely opposed this. And in turn, some backbench Conservatives have started opposing seemingly any and all action on cleaner air quality and electric vehicle adoption. So Kate is on hand to provide us some really helpful information on getting out of silos, overcoming the noise and promoting the facts for supercharging clean air action. So here is that talk with Kate Barnard, CEO and co-founder at Enjoy the Air in full. Yes, so as we've just mentioned in the studio, it's great to be talking about air quality and air pollution or as our next speaker might put it, community wealth in our next part of this podcast. And I'm delighted to be on the line with Kate Barnard, who is the CEO and the co-founder of Enjoy the Air. Thank you very much for taking the time to hop on, Kate. How are you doing? Very good. Thanks so much, Sarah. Delight. No, delighted to have you on. I love speaking to new people for these podcasts and it was great to be introduced to Enjoy the Air for some editorial work I did a few weeks ago. Um, So I'm sure we'll have some people listening that aren't super aware of the organisation. So it'd be great to just start with an introduction in your in your own words, Kate. Sure. We are Enjoy the Air. So we're all about simplifying data, enabling decision making, but improving lives. Every year in the UK, poor air quality kills approximately 36,000 people and costs our economy £20 billion. Across all the UK local authorities, there is no focused collaborative approach to solving this critical societal issue. This is due to their siloed data and disparate benchmarks for improving air quality to legislative standards. Therefore, the health of our UK citizens is declining and we will continue to significantly exacerbate this year on year. However, there is a solution. Enjoy the Air is the change maker for understanding and improving air quality. We're the only organisation that consolidates and simplifies existing complex environmental data from all of the key sectors. This creates one source of truth and a consistent understanding of regional and national data, providing full visibility of the real health and financial risk of poor air quality. At Enjoy the Air, we support governmental leaders with important decision making in order to protect and enhance our air quality, helping to improve the health of our nation. That's a super inspiring pitch for Enjoy the Air. And I wanted to get your view on you said there that there has been a bit of a siloed approach on this. We sort of know it's an important issue, but the solutions aren't necessarily being delivered in the most joined up and effective way. And you said that part of that is data. Um, But maybe other than data, why do you think action to improve air quality in the UK has been so siloed with sort of a little bit here and a little bit there and some underwhelming results as a as a result of that? Oh, you've opened a can of worms there, Sarah. (laughs) So uh, I'm an, an engineer by trade and background, and I'm really, really thinking systems. 
So looking at the cause and effect of air pollution. So looking at that perspective and then step back and look at what are the who are the stakeholders? Where does the money flow in government? What do they have to do to be good? What do they have to do to be successful? So an example is the new integrated care boards, ICBs for the healthcare NHS. Theirs is to make people better. And our UK is set out into 81 of these ICBs and they're done by population size, not geographic area size. And so they can have a multitude of local authorities underneath it. So an example is one uh, ICB has 14 local authorities. And I asked them, do you give your same bu budget for public health to every one of these local authorities? And they said, no, because some are sicker than others. OK, well, these four over here that you give more money to, if I told you that they are looking at different metrics, but they don't meet the legal requirements in the Environment Act for air quality, but you're giving them more money. I said, technically, you're rewarding bad behaviour. But because your success metric is to make people better, you're not able to put any money to those that are working really hard to improve air pollution to allow for uh, social prescribing or preventative medicine. So actually, we have our own government's money and policies fighting each other, which is a really key thing. When you come to being a business trying to sell a solution into it, you cannot fix the system. And actually, you have to then try and work out to be where their success metrics are and that exacerbates the siloed approach in a council you have air quality planning transport health uh, and all these other departments that again have their individual success metrics which could individually do well but holistically the council could fail we campaigned back for the spring budget to mimic really and take some good practice from uh, New Zealand that Jacinda Ahern had put in place of a well-being budget because nobody wants to pay for a solution from one budget knowing that the other departments are going to benefit so why don't you take a little bit of money from all of them and create a holistic well-being budget for that local authority and those citizens and now your success metrics change and your modus operandi and how you might assess solutions changes and it puts that community wealth at the heart of it. People get hung up on the cost, the direct cost to the NHS, which is 42.88 million a year, versus the not quite understanding that that translates to 20 billion pounds a year in economic cost. So that's twice that of obesity. So it's not just about the healthcare cost. That healthcare cost Avoiding that unlocks all this other good community wealth money for jobs and businesses and people working longer and people just living healthier lives. Yeah, we've we've seen the figure of something like 20 billion from DEFRA. And it's one of those things where it's sometimes hard to account for. But as you mentioned, sometimes accounting might not be the best way to go. It's a super complex conversation. So I wanted to get your views on calculating that and communicating that. 
um, better because I feel like if that had been done better in the past, maybe we wouldn't still be in our silos and our misinformation and our rowing about which benefits belong to which department or or which council. I did some more digging on this because actually it's a really hard one to quantify. When you look at climate change, people try and normalise everything back to, say, CO2 or carbon. When you actually look at air pollution, the different pieces that make up different constituents of it have different impacts on people's health. So the NO2 will have a different impact to the small particulate matter. Why is this important? Well, we could talk about ULEZ that if you want to transition from uh, internal combustion engines, the dirty diesels, to electric vehicles, the EVs, actually you'll see the NO2, the the NOx um, gases come down, but you'll actually see the PM2.5 probably increase because the EVs are heavier, there's more particulates around. But if you're normalising everything back to carbon, you won't see that fluctuation or the impact on health. So You've got to be careful how you calculate things. Having a look at the calculators online, there are some good government stuff, government websites. There is a good uh, Excel spreadsheet, but it requires you to know in depth a lot of things and to translate stuff into a normalisation. I still don't think it takes that holistic approach because it translates it into money. And as we know, a financial return on investment, there's more to it than that. There is a a health impact, societal impact, a nature impact that needs to start to be quantified. Yeah, this reminds me of what I've been seeing with the value of nature. Sometimes people arguing about, you know, should we put a price on a whale? It's it's a whale. You can't quantify that. It's ridiculous to be thinking about it. But then some people say, well, it's hard to get investment in oceans without that. So maybe we're at the same sort of place with with air. Well, we had a the there's the International Sustainability Standards Board, the ISSB, and they set up the International Financial Reporting Standards, IFRS. And this is how companies who meet certain criteria, they're over 250 people, they have a certain turnover or they have a certain revenue, they have to do reporting back. And up until now, it's been as a financial metric or a qualitative metric. They've brought in two new standards, standard one and standard two, but looking at sustainability at a macro level and then more climate change impact per sector at a micro level level, and how you start to translate that from financial into this impact. So you're going to see the requirements change. They come into effect from January. As each company hits its year end, the following year, they have to start adopting these. And this will help them unlock investment because we as individuals who might want to put our savings somewhere with a portfolio, how do we know hand on heart? Are we putting it with companies that are greenwashing? Or are we putting it with companies that actually can demonstrate how they're being beneficial? There's $53 trillion has been invested in ESG. So with that amount of money, you'd think, boy, we should have solved it by now. What are we still doing? So something's not working and the need to do something different. So this is a new lens to look at the problem. 
That makes complete sense. And I love how we're having such a broad conversation. But I do want to touch on the fact that we've probably got some businesses listening, thinking, OK, but what can I do? Um, and especially what can I do if I'm somewhere like the UK where there's a bit of dearth of policy, um, where the government's sort of flip flopping about this? So I wanted to get your view on what organisations like businesses could realistically do in terms of getting started with that systems thinking that might seem too big for them to start with? I think oh, I could big up all the engineers because our brains, I'm sure, think very differently. There is a lot about having a cognitive diversity in your business. Uh, a lot of the, the chief sustainability officers, I think the new career is not seen as the professional network like the engineering institutions and other professional institutions accounting, that there there isn't that community of practice and a lot of people might feel isolated and having to find their own individual solutions to it. So to maybe reach out and let's look at how we combine it and share that knowledge, because there will be a way of solving it. And we are definitely looking at how how to help businesses assess what good looks like when you make an internal decision for investment so that when you get to having to be audited for these standards, you aren't just sitting there at the end of the year wondering if you achieved it or not. Actually, you're being strategic from the start of your financial year and using the logic to make the right decisions. So you know exactly where you are at the end of the year and you won't need to do any greenwashing because you've made all the right decisions in the first place. Well, I look forward to seeing some of that thinking. I'm sure it would be great for businesses to know what good looks like in terms of air quality um, and well-being. And as you say, community wealth and community health, um, as well as things that are maybe easier to just put on a, a numbers sheet like a ton of carbon. But Kate, I think that's all the time we have for our segment of this podcast. So thank you very much for for hopping on and recording with me. Oh, an absolute pleasure, Sarah. Yeah, a final big thank you to Kate for her time. I was absolutely flabbergasted to call Kate and hear that she was still on recovery from surgery recently. So Kate, if you're tuning in, I hope your recovery is going well. And thank you so much for taking the time at this time when everyone working on air quality is super busy debating ULES to hop on sustainability uncovered. So if Luke was here, he'd probably make some sort of duo joke. So if Kate was the Batman of this episode, Dr. Angela Wilkinson, CEO and Secretary General of the World Energy Council, might be Robin. Um, But we always say last but by no means least. And this interview is honestly about a vitally crucial topic. I'm probably doing it a disservice with my little superhero analogy although Angela is something of a energy transition superhero having worked on this for um, a considerable amount of time and as she explains working hard to get people not only to crunch the numbers about investment um, and about access levels but also to think about the people at the heart of the energy transition those working in the energy supply chain those facing high energy bills um, during the energy crisis and those that still do not have access to clean, affordable energy in or near their own homes. So coming back to the SDGs, Angela's interview is all about whether we can deliver SDG 7, which relates to the delivery of clean and affordable energy for all globally by the end of the decade. 
We know that progress on some goals went backwards during the pandemic and the energy price crisis. So what has that all meant for SDG 7 and what can we do now to supercharge action in the future? Find out in that talk now. Yes, so as we have mentioned in the studio, we're heading over to SDG 7 for this next part of our SDG September bumper special of Sustainability Uncovered. Um, And it's great to have on the line the um, Secretary General and Chief Executive Officer at the World Energy Council, Dr Angela Wilkinson. Angela, thank you so much for taking the time today. It's great. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Me too. I was I was just saying off call, it was really exciting for us at ED to agree a media partnership recently. So expect much more from, from them in the future. Um, but for now, I think we should probably start at the beginning. So Angela, for those who are listening and aren't super familiar with the council, it would be great to, to have an introduction. Oh, thanks, Sarah. So the World Energy Council was, was first formed um, 100 years ago by visionary leadership to rebuild energy systems in a time of crisis. We had the first influenza pandemic, we had the First World War, and we had the economic crisis building in the 1930s. And there's almost a sense of deja vu today as we're operating. We now operate in all world regions, nearly 100 countries, and we have thousands of organisations that form our member community. And We convene power for the common good, not for money and not to lobby. And we do that by connecting leaders across the spectrum of world energy systems and energy transition interests. Um, Our job is to support increasingly diverse and connected energy societies to lead with and learn from each other about how to make faster, fairer and more far reaching energy transitions happen. And I'd be happy to unpack that um, at any point. And we're about to... um, approach our 100th anniversary and we believe the world needs a diverse and flexible energy leadership community to manage these globally connected challenges of human and climate security which of course are material to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals and we know it's not easy to be truly global, independent and impactful. In fact we were formed before the UN but we have many characteristics in terms of working for the common good like the UN. The energy leadership landscape today is increasingly fragmented and conflicted. This is a decisive decade for climate and justice actions. And they're also very divisive and polarising times. So we're about to um, convene the 26th World Energy Congress in Rotterdam in April next year. It's going to bring 7,000 leaders together. There'll be 70 sessions and we're committed to redesigning energy for people and planet. So that's a, that's the World Energy Council in a nutshell. Um, if you want a bit about me, Sarah, then I have to say I'm probably not your conventional energy um, leader. I've always been interested in the um, social and the how we organise ourselves as societies rather than all the technological and the money aspects of energy transitions. We're at this incredibly critical juncture of human history. And I started working on climate change over 40 years ago. And I brought into the council, I came as Secretary General in 2019, I brought an agenda on humanising energy. I think we talk a lot about energy in terms of energy for money, energy for power, but actually energy is for all of us. It's about what we do that makes our lives better. And we're now in this era of energy for people and planet. And my background has been about working with the principles of realistic hope and futures design. And my agenda is that 
net zero is the means, not the destination. And what we have to do is design an energy system or systems, in fact, that enable humanity to navigate towards a safe operating space, which bears in mind planetary boundaries, but also the social foundations of trust and justice that all modern societies are based on. That's a brief intro. No, I mean, it's so much big picture inspirational stuff, but that's what the SDGs are about, right? That linking of the environmental and the human and the justice um, as as well. So thank you so much for that introduction. Um, and I just wanted to get really a sort of global snapshot of SDG 7, which relates to clean and accessible energy for all. Um, as you mentioned, the global energy landscape is is pretty fragmented, a bit conflicted, mm -hmm. sometimes hard to get information. Um, so I wanted to get your view on whether the pandemic has impacted progress on goal seven, because the UN's most recent annual progress report on the SDGs did slow some backsliding on some other areas like education and public health. So what's been going on with with energy? So UN SDG seven is about universal um, access to affordable, reliable and sustainable energy services, right? Basically, will 10 billion people on this planet have access to the energy they need for better lives and livelihoods? And will they have that access in a way which doesn't destroy the planet for future generations? That's really UNSDG in a nutshell. And it's not a single issue agenda. And that's one of the big challenges when we, you know, the UNSDGs themselves, I think, are something like 175 different metrics and goals. So it's, it's quite complex. When we look at what's happening around the um, SDG 7 in energy terms, then what we know is we're still, the world is still reeling from multiple crises. We've had COVID-19. We've also had the, um, the energy security crisis in Europe triggered by the Russia invasion of Ukraine. And we've also had, of course, this cost of living crisis. And so these issues of affordable, reliable and sustainable access of everybody become um, get blown up. So what we've seen is that we've seen backsliding in terms of we have more people living in energy poverty than we had a few years back. We have fewer people with access to the energy that they need. And we have a bigger challenge as we move ahead because we've learned from the COVID crisis that resilience extends to people and communities, not just to individual households. And we've got to think, how are we going to develop an energy system which enables 10 billion better lives and at the same time is going to have to have energy transitions happen faster, more fairly, and be more far reaching all parts of the world in a new context. And that context is around um, a new context of global trust. There's a less benign geopolitical context than we've ever had before. Challenges of affordability. And also we have to be able to adapt to climate change, not just mitigate emissions. So we've seen more people struggling to access the energy they need for everyday lives, and that's across the board. We've seen uh, those without any basic access to energy. It's, uh, it's nearer, it, we went up from 675 million, I think we've gone back closer to a billion people without basic access to electricity. And we've got about two and a half billion people who lack any clean energy access for cooking and other needs. But even if we take that, that's the tip of the iceberg, because how much energy do you need for a decent life 
in a modern society. And so what we've also seen out of these new, these, these recent crises is increasing questioning around what is an appropriate metric for modern energy access. Is it a couple of thousands of kilowatt hours or is it nearer a terawatt hour? What do societies really need to make sure that everybody can flourish and thrive as we try to navigate humanity into this safe operating space where we have to be mindful of planetary boundaries, but also of questions of fundamental justice, access and equity. Lots to think about there. And as you say, a lot more interventions and change needed. And you've mentioned that the council is convening um, next spring in Rotterdam to shape some of those recommendations. But before then, we do have the G20 meeting this month, um, also Climate Week NYC, also COP. Um, so I wondered if at that this point in time, the council has any key calls to action to be made on, on those global stages. So I think I think the G20 is going to talk about energy access, affordability and the decarbonisation of heat and transport. So I'm going to, um, you know, let me say, so energy access, I, I raise this question again. What What is appropriate energy access? Is it just a couple of uh, a kilowatt hour or two a day? which will switch your lights on and let you watch the television? Or do you actually, does everybody need sufficient access because actually they need a decent job? And then the energy for work, the energy for transport and the energy for um, doing more things comes into play. So access, what is the definition of modern energy access, which is appropriate for decent lives everywhere? It's not the basic energy access uh, metric that we have currently in the UNSDG, in my opinion. Um, energy affordability. Well, the conversation around affordability is transforming as we speak. There's, everybody keeps talking about the price, the decreasing price of renewable technologies, right? But actually, energy services are not just about the cost of supply. Um, in effect, we all know solar, uh, the, the sunshine and wind are free. But actually, when you convert sunshine and wind into renewable power, you've also got to try transport it from where you convert it to where it gets used. You've got to think about how do you store it. You've got to think about how you make it reliable. You've got to think about how you make it affordable. And that adds system costs. So affordability is not just about technology price. It's about system costs. And it's also about value in use. Am I getting the energy I need that allows me to create greater value so that I can keep paying for my energy? Or am I just making it through by being able to um, buy just enough energy to live, but not really enough energy to do anything else. So I would encourage the G20 to really revisit this conversation around access and affordability. Um, I think we're, we're still living in a 1950s world rather than in a 21st, 22nd century world. And then in terms of decarbonisations of heat and, and transport, I'm, I'm going to do my hobby horse here, I'm afraid. I, I hear these conversations all the time about how do we get to this tipping point of getting faster decarbonisation going? How do we accelerate decarbonisation and electric vehicles as a tipping point? So my question is, who owns an electric vehicle, right? Majority of vehicle owners tend to be men. The majority of vehicle owners also tend to be rel relatively wealthy. Um, so here we are creating a tipping point, as far as I can see, around trying to decarbonise heat and energy, which actually serves a very few people in terms of their needs. What about decarbonisation of public transport? And what about getting people to share vehicles? I mean, we could cut the emissions of an 
internal combustion engine if four people got in it once. So I sometimes wonder when we're we're focusing on these acceleration points about who is this energy system serving and are those different needs and interests at the table. So I would encourage um, the G20 to adopt the World Energy Council's agenda of humanising energy and thinking about much more about how do we engage more communities and women and workers and youth as well as um, business ecosystems and business interests at the table as we decarbonise. That makes complete sense and we touched on that in the previous part of this episode um, looking at essentially why the EV transition isn't super accessible to those with physical um, disability so if you haven't um, listened to that one do go back and take a listen shameless plug for that. Um, Angelo I know we don't have a huge amount of time left I could talk to you about this all day to be honest Um, but you've mentioned something really important there the business ecosystem so most people that read ED and listen to ED are probably working in-house at businesses Um, many of these are great businesses that are looking not only to go for their own interests but to change the systems that they operate in so if you could tell businesses Um, about how they could be leading advocates for goal seven beyond their own four walls at the moment. Um, What would you tell them to do? So I think the last couple of years we've seen a huge conversation around the so-called ESG agenda as being the big shaper of um, what business leadership can look like. And I would encourage all your businesses to look at the Energy Trilemma Index as well. Because the ESG framework started off as how do businesses improve their governance and management performance, right? How do they think about their environmental impacts? How do they think about their workforce and the communities that um, are around their assets? And how do they think about what that means about governance? And and now there's a huge amount of pressure for the ESG to become some of impact metric measurement framework for are we achieving climate goals? And so it's it's becoming it's it's becoming in in my view it's becoming overstretched and it will underdeliver. Whereas what we actually have to have, we have to have a measurement framework that measures impacts around energy security, energy affordability and equity and environmental sustainability, including but not just carbon emissions. We've got to have viable water systems. We've also got to have vibrant forestry and land uses. So I would say to your business leaders, why aren't you working with the world energy trilemma not just the ESG framework, because ESG started as let's look within the house, whereas the World Energy Trilemma framework was designed as a framework for how do we bring increasingly diverse businesses, communities and countries together so that they can lead with and learn from each other. And so that that would be my first bit. And the second bit I would say is um, national governments and businesses were not designed for a warmer, wobblier or wicked problem world. And that's what the climate and energy security agenda really is. And we really have to we have to stop all this talking, but we actually have to have a better quality of leadership conversation. We do need more innovation, but some of that innovation needs to be about experimenting with new ways of collaborating, not just in terms of getting technology moving faster. But how do we collaborate better today in a world where we have to increasingly bring diverse systems, interests, and needs together. And my last bit would be, we're the only community that for 100 years has focused on making faster, fairer, and more far-reaching energy transitions happen. So why aren't you part of our, if you're not part of our leadership community, 
why aren't you and join up now <laughs> got it I mean we've talked about how much of a mess things are in but I would say one thing which is that a couple of years ago I didn't know a lot of people reading us that knew what the energy trilemma is but now it is really common um common parlance so I'm glad to see that getting some of the attention it deserves um, but Angela, I think we are out of time for this particular segment of Sustainability Uncovered. Thank you so much for jumping on and helping us maybe start to unpick that really messy and wicked problem of SDG 7. Thank you so much. Lovely to talk to you, Sarah, and delighted to be in partnership with Edie. Once again, a huge thank you to Angela for her time and for her infinite wisdom on the energy transition. Um so those are our duo of interviews for the day and honestly it was great to look back at the lineup and see that we had two female CEOs each with an a wealth of knowledge in their respective fields. The SDGs are a big global topic and honestly there are all manner of ways in which we could have taken this two-part special um, but I hope you'll agree with me that we've made the most of the time that we had and given you all some food for thought. I know I definitely didn't know everything we've just talked about about clean air or about the energy transition, or indeed from the first part of this episode, everything about the accessibility of clean tech to disabled people. So it's been a two-parter that's almost impossible to summarise in a nutshell, um, but if, like me, you're keen to carry on the discussion, you're in luck. Um, because the week beginning the 18th of September is Global Goals Week hosted by the UN, and there will be events taking place all over the world. To coincide with this, Edie is hosting its own dedicated focus week of content and events all dedicated to the Global Goals. So you can expect reports, interviews, features, um, and the jewel in the metaphorical crown of the week is the free-to-attend afternoon of online events that we're hosting on Thursday the 21st of September. So these events are called our Sustainable Development Action Sessions. Um, we have three sessions for you, all dedicated to providing you with the tools, insights and knowledge you need to maximise your organisation's positive contributions to the SDGs. So please do tune in. You can hear from experts at the UN Global Compact, IES, PHS Group and many more. You can find a full agenda at ed.net, click on events, then click on webinars and masterclasses. That is also the link to register. Once again, that's ed.net, click on events, then click webinars and masterclasses. I'll be co-chairing the sessions with Matt, so we hope to see you there virtually. We also look forward to seeing you at the next episode of Sustainability Uncovered, which will air in October, hopefully with more microphones and a full team back in the studio. But for today, it's a goodbye from me. Goodbye. You are listening to Sustainability Uncovered, brought to you in partnership with Lloyds Bank. The ED team are delighted to have partnered with Lloyds Bank for this podcast series as they support UK business in the transition to a more sustainable future. Businesses of all sizes have the chance to power and accelerate this transition and seize the huge opportunities presented by it. Lloyds Bank works with clients not only to help finance this transition, but also to understand the challenges they face and the business prospects they look to capitalise on. To find out more, search Lloyds Bank Sustainability. Lending is subject to status.